You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So if you would turn to the book of Philippians, we last week I introduced this book. Does it sound okay? Last week uh, in the introduction, I looked at some of the critiques as to whether the author of this epistle was Paul, and it's uh, unquestionably the Apostle Paul that penned the epistle to the Philippians. Also, the place where Paul penned this epistle was while imprisoned, uh, his first imprisonment in Rome. The date, of course, was 61 to 62 A.D. And the uh, purpose was to minister and to thank, give thanks for the Philippian believers as Paul had received good reports regarding them. So before we begin, let's open in prayer and then we'll take a look at the opening of this book. Heavenly Father, we just thank you today for the privilege of once again gathering collectively to worship you, to study your word, and to praise you in song and hymns, and to collectively give praise to the God that we serve. We ask now, Father, that you would guide us in understanding through your Holy Spirit, and that most of all, you would be glorified and that we would be able to have perhaps clearer understanding as you unveil your truth through the power of your spirit through your word. We just give you thanks and ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Since we live in a fallen world, it's not uncommon that many people suffer from dissatisfaction, depression, uh, unhappiness, and try to seek happiness and fulfillment in their lives. And they seek it through various means. I gave a quote from John MacArthur last week, which I think is appropriate to repeat again this week. And he says this in one of his commentaries. Happiness, which is the feeling of exhilaration, is elusive. However, joy is not. Joy is the biblical conviction that the sovereign, God's sovereignty controls the events in a believer's life for the believer's good and for God's glory and is available to all who obey him. The key to partaking in joy is obedience. So if we want to consider the joy of a Christian, it is contingent upon our obedience to God's word. Spiritual joy is not really an attitude that's dependent 
depending upon our circumstances. Believers in Christ Jesus, uh, whom God has predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, have partaken in God's grace through faith. In order to be justified, we have, by God's grace, turned to God through Christ in salvation. At which point, God begins the work of sanctification. Let's look at this just briefly. If you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 29, chapter 8 in the book of Romans. How many of you were in Sunday school when I went through the book of Romans? Okay, oh, a few of you. It was a fun study. In verse 29, Paul says this to the Roman believers. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. We also have to understand in this verse, when Paul uses the word foreknew, it's not talking about God's omniscience, looking down the corridors of time to see who is saved. It is God's predestination, his love upon those whom he's called. Foreknew uh, gives the essence of an intimate relationship with. So God has set his heart on all those whom he's predestined unto salvation. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So this aspect of the calling, uh, justification, sanctification, and ultimate glorification, these are all the work of God's Holy Spirit. He does so in every believer. Okay, let's uh, turn back to the book of Philippians. Paul, the apostle, uh, through the inspiration of God's Spirit, has written 13 epistles in the New Testament. So, God used him in a unique and significant way. This apostle was set apart for the unique purpose of bringing the gospel throughout Asia, as well as writing the epistles to the saints. This particular epistle, as we mentioned last week, is considered by most the book of joy. Throughout all the apostles' epistles, there is elements of joy. Each one of them presents that as he brings forth encouragement. However, this isn't as much a theological treatise as some of his books like Romans or Galatians. This is more of a practical book and one in which Paul was trying to just bring encouragement and show his thanksgiving and appreciation and love for the saints in Philippi. So it's, it's unique in that way. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones 
says this in one of his commentaries of Philippians. Quote, it is generally agreed that all of Paul's letters which have been preserved, there are certain qualities belonging to this particular epistle which make it unique. It is the most lyrical, the happiest letter which the apostle ever wrote, at least among those which have been preserved. There is in it a note of happiness and joy. Not that joy is absent from Paul's other letters, but it is particularly striking here. Although he does give some admonitions when he wrote his letter, Paul does not seem to have a reason for reprimanding the church in Philippi. None of the unfortunate or unpleasant things that had taken place in Corinth, for instance, had taken place here. As Cornell is doing, going through the book of Corinthians, he is bringing forth the problematic issues that were transpiring by some of the believers in Corinth. It wasn't the case here in Philippi, at least during this period when Paul penned this epistle. This epistle didn't only bring encouragement to the first century church, but it has brought encouragement throughout church history for the past 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years. The epistle speaks of God's people at this present time to bring joy and encouragement to his children, regardless of what we're going through. Since we live in a fallen world, people suffer trials. There's painful trials that Christians go through as well as the world. God's word, uh, since it's inspired and infallible and eternal, is the final authority for our lives. Paul here is in prison. He's going through a painful experience and yet. In this epistle, he can say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Some people uh, have disliked Paul's epistles and his writings because of the sometimes redundancy that he brings. And yet, in the first chapter, he tells us this, how to triumph over circumstances. He says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me when he gets to chapter four. Now, out of all verses in this epistle, this one has probably been misquoted and misapplied more than any other scripture in the book of Philippians. People put it on their T-shirts. They have no idea what the contextual, actual interpretation or application of that means. Paul, in that context, as we'll examine closely, was not talking about accomplishing some feat. He was talking about he can be content in every circumstances. He can either live with plenty or be debased. And he's learned to be content in all circumstances. And then he quotes this verse, I can do all things in Christ Jesus that strengthens me. Joy is a great and important theme in the New Testament. When we look at that, the word itself comes from the Greek verb rejoice, which the original is charo. 
in the Greek. This word appears 96 times in the New Testament. The noun, however, joy, is chara. It's used 59 times in the New Testament. It's so frequent that we sometimes overlook and forget its meaning. Now, again, I'm going to quote what MacArthur gave. He gave six elements of biblical joy, which I think are worth sharing. The first one is the joy of a gift from God. And then he quotes the psalmist. You have put gladness in my heart more than their gain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's from Psalm 4, verses 7 and 8. Then another psalm. You will make me known. You will make known to me the path of life. Your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Psalm 16:11. The next one is God grants joy to the believers who those who turn to the gospel. The Lord himself said this to the disciples in John 15, which Jim just exposited probably a year ago, somewhere like that. The verse, the Lord says this, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. John 15:11. Christ came to proclaim a gospel that would truly give supernatural divine joy to those who receive him as Lord and Savior. Third, joy is produced by God the Holy Spirit. Paul says this, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what he gave to the Romans, Romans 14, 17. To the Galatians, Paul writes this, and this is an element of God's Holy Spirit in us when he gives the essence of the fruit of the Spirit. He tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Remember, as I opened, one of the elements of experiencing God's joy is through obedience to his word. And as that's evidenced through the fruit of the Holy Spirit, one of the elements of that fruit is joy. Next one is a believer's joy is deepened through trials. All of us have experienced trials throughout our lives in different forms. Losses, death in the family, illnesses, and when we think of that, we want to remember today, continue to pray for Barb as well as Jean Gross, who has been hospitalized with pneumonia. We all have some form of trial that we go through during our lives, Christians as well as non-Christians. And yet with this, the full reality of joy, when it's contrasted with sadness, sorrow and difficulties, Paul wrote to the believers in Thessalonica, 
you also become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit. That was in 1 Thessalonians 1.6. In his second letter to the believers at Corinth, Paul spoke of being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That was in 2 Corinthians 6.10. James counseled believers this, to, to this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's James 1.2. And the final thing is that biblical joy embraces a believer's joy when it's made complete as they set their hope on the glory of heaven. There are always, they will always be rejoicing in the hope of eternal life with Jesus Christ. Romans 12.12. Peter reminded them that when he wrote this in 1 Peter 4, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That was 1 Peter 4.13. And finally, in Jews' benediction, now to whom... To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the one and only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's Jude 24 and 25. So as we look at this, we recognize the elements of joy that the Lord brings to us. When we begin and we open this book with the first verse, this is Paul's salutation to the Philippians. He says this, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. He actually, in in the New King James, says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. This is Paul's greeting to the Philippians. Now, I want to show you, before we get started, how Paul traveled and how he ended up in Philippi. might have to turn the lights for this. This is Paul's second journey, and we start in, he left Caesarea, made his way up through Antioch, and then by land crossed over to Tarsus, and then to Derbe and Lystria, then to Iconium, and up again to Antioch. And then, as we remember last week when I did the introduction, the Spirit of God prevented him from going south. As he, After he left Troas, he went across to Nepalus and then to Philippi. But remember, when he was in Troas, he had the vision of the man from Macedonia calling him. So from Troas... He crossed over and went to Nepalus and then Philippi. So that was 
Paul's journey to Philippi, and as we consider that, Paul was, uh, his, when he reached Philippi and brought the gospel that was received by those whom God called, and they embraced the gospel and they loved Paul. And Paul had a very unique relationship with the Philippian believers. In fact, out of any of the epistles, probably he shows this is the most endearing relationship that he had of all the churches that he established. Okay, beginning with uh, verse 1, the title Paul uses to refer to himself and Timothy clearly describes the heart attitude of Paul and Timothy. He uses the term bondservant. Now, we've heard this before, and I've done the study. Jim's revealed it in many of his messages. But the term bondservant is doulos. Doulos was a slave. And bondservants uh, describes a person who is owned by somebody. And they were subservient to that master or owner. And they were also dependent upon that master. Paul used it for himself. Rather than identify himself as an apostle and author of the epistles and where he was going or what he was going to do, he first identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, a bondservant. He was loyal and faithful, and he served to the ultimate end until he was martyred. Paul is a perfect example of one who, when God transformed him on the road to Damascus, he served God with all his might. He was preeminent example, aside from our Lord himself, of service of God. Uh, as Ron pointed out when I complete this description, it was a voluntary, it was a, wasn't uh, under incarceration, which I'm going to explain the different forms of slave and how that came to pass. It was voluntary. And as we look at this, uh, under the Mosaic Law in Exodus 21, it says this, If a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And then he shall serve him permanently. That's from Exodus 21. So the word doulos is that of a bondservant, a willing slave who gives of himself fully in servitude to his master. And that's the term that Paul used. I remember one time uh, when I was doing jail ministry and I was reading one of Paul's epistles, probably Philippians, and he uses this term in a couple of the other epistles as well in his opening greeting. And 
one of the individuals in my study said, oh, that's cool. As soon as I get out, I'm going to go get my ear pierced. And I said, oh, really? Why is that? He said, well, I just want to show I'm a, I'm a bond servant. And I said, you show that through obedience. This was an Old Testament concept, not one that's promoted in New Testament. So I began to explain in as patient a manner as I could that getting an ear pierced is not reflection of contemporary Christianity service to the Lord. Paul used this term referring to that bondservant because he wanted to express his love and his servitude to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual law that no one can really become a bondservant of Jesus Christ until he becomes knowledgeable and understanding, first of all, that he's a slave to sin. In understanding first that we're sinners and we have a need to be saved from the penalty of our sin, that's when God begins the process of bringing us to the knowledge of our need for salvation. There's different methods uh, throughout Scripture in which a slave was, or how one could become a slave. First, he could become a slave by being conquered in war by an opposing army. An example of this was those who took part in the Athenian invasion in Sicily. And they became slaves of the Sicilians when the Greeks were defeated by Syracuse in 413 B.C. So, being conquered, one could become a slave. The second is a person could come become a slave by birth. Any child born from a, of a slave is automatically a slave as well. So, if a household has slaves and one of the slaves has a child, that child automatically becomes a slave in that master's household as it grows up and becomes able to serve that master. Third, a person could become a slave because of debt. This was very common, especially in the Roman Empire during the time of Paul's epistle. It was common uh, also in the Leviticus, it was a custom that there was a law that lessened the effect of slavery. Every 50 years, there was what was called the Jubilee year. The year of Jubilee, those who had become slaves of debt were automatically set free. This is from Leviticus 25. So, as we look at the different forms of slavehood and how one would become a slave, Paul did so voluntarily as Dulos describes. In this background, uh, any man that became a slave had to recognize that they were serving. They were servants. 
as we consider uh, that we're slaves to sin, I want to look at that in Romans chapter 8. For what the law could not do, uh, verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on the account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, things on the spirit. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Also, back in Romans 3, Paul says that there is none righteous, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside and altogether become unprofitable. There was no one who does good. Their throats, like an open tomb, their tongues have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So we recognize that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory as Paul penned in Romans 3. And yet, when we look at the essence of salvation... In regeneration, we see a man like Paul who once persecuted Christians and sought to destroy the church. He traveled with zeal trying to destroy Christianity. And yet, when he was converted on the road to Damascus and he was told after was Ananias that laid hands on who was laid hands on Paul? Laid hands on Paul, and he said from the Lord that you will see what you'll have to suffer for my sake. And as Paul was converted, he had a zeal for the Lord that was beyond any that we know of, of all the apostles. He was willing to suffer for Christ. He was willing to be in prison. He was beaten. He was robbed. He was shipped shipwrecked. He suffered peril in the deep. Paul did these things voluntarily as a bondservant. Go back to Philippians verse 1. Actually, when we look at Paul and we think of the gospel that he brought forth and we recognize that throughout Scripture, it is revealed that all men have sinned. In fact, when we look at the psalmist in Psalm 51.5, he says, David says this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time of my mother conceived me. It also teaches it was never a time in David's life when he was not a sinner. 
He knew that he was born with a sin nature. It also teaches that sin rules over us and we can't do the things that we want to do. David prayed this in Psalm 19.13. He was praying for God's deliverance from willful sin, asking that they not rule over him. Solomon speaks of the sinner being bound by the cords of sin in Proverbs 5.22. We are also sinners by debt. Paul says that the wages of sin is death. And it can only be paid for through the sacrificial death of Christ and placing our faith in Him for salvation. There are ways that men could be free from slavery. A person could earn his freedom or buy it and be given to him by another person. Somebody could uh, bring somebody out of prison by paying his debt. And it would the term that they use that he was redeemed. The same term, of course, used for the Lord. It was a precursor of the picture of Christ redeeming us from sin. Another way a person could be free, but spiritually there's no way of being free by paying for our sin because Christ is the only one who could pay the penalty of our sin. There's nothing but God's grace through faith that can bring us to a place of forgiveness and salvation. Christ paid the price on Calvary. In Romans 8.1, Paul says that therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The expression in Christ appears several times. That's never used in any other religion. When we talk about being in Christ, we're talking about an immersion in Christ, Christ in us. As believers, we become one with our Lord and Savior. Paul and Timothy, as they began to bring forth the gospel and minister, they considered him nothing but less than fully servants of God. There are, there are many misconcepts of what Paul says in the next verse. Paul addresses himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Then he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, along with the bishops and deacons. Many times the word saints has been misconstrued or misunderstood. And especially in the area of the Roman Catholic system. There, uh, they consider somebody who did some revered deed or they have to have certain works in their life and then those works are evaluated and then they're officially canonized as a saint. Many of you may recall recently that uh, they did so with Mother Teresa. And I remember 
when they did that, I thought, here's a woman who quoted in a newscast one day when they interviewed her. She, I think she went to New York for the first time. And they asked her if she felt that she was a real servant of uh, Jesus. And she said, well, I believe in Jesus and I, and I pray to Mary so that I can talk to Jesus. And I believe there are many ways to God. And then she started naming off the various religions, including Hinduism and the Muslim religion and all the various cults that have that are idolaters, basically. And yet they considered her and evaluated her by the works that she did uh, while in India, and they canonized her. That was the process that they used. They have no idea what the word means or what it signifies. As we look at this word, saint, we have to understand what the Bible says about the word itself. I have the words written down here. I'm very sorry that I got things mixed up here. But um, I'll get back to that. Paul addresses uh, to the saints. Here we go. And what the word means is holy or sanctified. It comes from the word hagiosmos. And it's synonymous with saint sanctification. They're both synonymous in the Greek. And as we look at that word, it means that God has set us apart. That's what a saint is. One who is set apart by God. So, saint, sanctified, both are considered one who was set apart by God to himself. Unfortunately, many don't understand the concept of what a saint truly is. There are numerous scriptures that refer to saints, but all of them are speaking of believers. Paul wrote to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ, saints by calling with all who love and call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. That's 1 Corinthians 1-2. Like all other believers, Christians at Corinth were saints, not saints because they were mature or because of what they did, but they were saints by calling. It refers to those who were separated unto God through the gospel by grace through faith. Many understand, misunderstand that and think it refers to some kind of personal holiness. One who is a saint will biblically strive to be holy, but we're not saints because of what we do or the deeds that we do. The things that we do, we do by God's grace, and we do because we are saints. If you're a Christian, God has set you apart in this way. <clears throat> we are saints 
because we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote this to the Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20 Paul's letters often use the term in Christ. It occurs 50 times and in Christ in Christ Jesus occurs 50 times and in Christ 29 times. In the Lord 45 times. Being in Christ therefore is acceptable term for believers. And that's what brings us to the term of being joyful. Paul addresses the saints in Philippi, but he also says with bishops and deacons. This is a bit uh, of an addition to some of the other epistles. Rather than just addressing the saints, he's also addressing those who formerly served within the church at Philippi. He specifically uh, addresses the church leaders. There have been many uh, commentators who give reasons for this, but at the very least, we can say that all local churches should have a plurality. It should be led by a plurality of elders and deacons are the ones who serve the physical needs of the body. That's how a church is governed, and that's how local churches were designed biblically to function. Overseers and deacons are called. Uh, Acts 20, verses 17 and 28, an overseer is another term for elder. Uh, We could have the term pastor, overseer, bishop, elder, or shepherd. Dave Rich gave a very in-depth study of that when he did 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. They existed because they were needed, and they also existed because they were appointed under Paul's direction. If the poor were needing help, they were entrusted men who were the deacons who would take care of those needs. That way, the pastors, the overseers, could teach and build the flock up through teaching of God's word. That's primarily the function of elders. That is the equipping of the saints, the teaching. I got a, I have a quote here from James Montgomery Boyce. He says this, The secret of forward progress in the life of a Christian congregation is that the saints must be servants. And there is a division of labor coupled with the working together for Christ, for the furtherance of the gospel and the strengthening of other believers. This was God's way of blessing the church of Philippi. It's God's way of blessing all local churches. You need not be a deacon or an elder to serve, but you can work together with God's saints for spiritual ends. God wants you to do the work of Christ, of the servant of Christ, together with others who serve for the spiritual assistance of those in the flock. Paul gives us this salutation, and then he says, Grace and peace 
from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to pick up there next time. I apologize for my uh, interruptions in some of this. I wanted to just express that as Paul goes through this epistle, he now is going to give us one of his common greetings. Grace to you and peace from our God and Lord, Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.